Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. As always, I'm joined by my brother, the master sword wielder, Dagan Moriarty. Hi, guys. Ha, 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 hi, guys. Ooh, hi, uh, guys. You're going to make like, a little jingle do, now? Do, do. I'm, I'm trying to do the Zelda song. song. Oh, I hi. see. Okay, I interrupted you, so hi, let's hear hi, it. Hi, 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 there you go. All right, I rewrote it for you a little bit. A little Thank bit of a you. remix. Hold on. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it took too long to just get to the... Let's just cut we, to the fucking let's chase, just cut please. to the chase from now on. Please. Welcome back to Knockback, our nostalgia and retro podcast for the uninitiated. My brother and I sit down every week and do a, you know, a, a podcast about something old, something from our childhoods, something even predating our childhoods sometimes, whether it's a movie, a video game, a TV show. You know, we did one on the video store, so something a little bit more amorphous than that. Dave, today's episode is about a game that I think you and I share a great affinity for and certainly played together when I was young and you were young. I got it for Christmas and I think we really enjoyed it together. It's called The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. A little Super known Nintendo. game. A little known game called The Legend of Zelda <laughs> A Link to the Past, which is one of SNES's obviously great games, widely considered one of the greatest Zelda games of all time. And some people even consider it still the best Zelda game of all time. I think it's pretty close. Oh, yeah. Still give the nod to Majora's Mask, I think, personally. But I yeah. love A Link to the Past, and I'm Me excited too. that we're doing an episode about this seminal game Me too. in our lives. And you're wearing your Zelda socks. I know, they that are, wasn't even planned. They are original NES Zelda socks, so they're not quite accurate. Not quite. Oh, pa- Link to the Past socks would be amazing. That would be very cool. Huh. That'd be very cool. But we're excited about this episode. We're excited to talk about it. We have lots of notes, lots of contributions from the listeners. Remember, you can support our show and all other things Colin's Last Stand, whether it's the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, the PlayStation podcast called Sacred Symbols, or the YouTube channel called SideQuest. That's all about video games over at patreon.com slash Colin's Last Stand. You supporting us over there allows us to continue to do this and other shows. And it gives you extra perks as well, including exclusive podcasts, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show, early ad-free access to every show we do, etc. Your support is essential, so please consider supporting us over there. Thousands of you have and do support us over there, and we thank you very much for that. Thank you. Now, Dave, before we get into it, I want to open our show today with a bunch of reader anecdotes about their experiences with Link to the Past. But before we do that, we have a new segment for Wave 5 of Knockback. We're getting towards the late, the latter third, I should say, of Knockback's third, or fifth wave. Man, I'm flubbing again. I, this is like three episodes where I'm <laughs> talking about together. how I'm going to flub. I'm, I'm sure, oh, we're recording so many episodes. We're recording so many episodes. They're all kind of blurring together in my mind a little bit in terms yeah. of the recording schedule. This happens. But we have a new little kind of segment that you came up with. Well, we have two segments that we will open and close each episode with as we've been doing for this wave. And we're going to open 
this show as we've opened every show so far with some dad jokes. Dad jokes. About the topic at hand. So, Dagan, hit me with some Legend of, the, of Zelda related dad jokes. Thank you so much again to you two people that requested this feature to come back. <laughs> and for everybody else, our sincere apologies. Very self-deprecating with this decision to bring this back. <laughs> and apologies to the people that requested it as well. So, can you believe this? I only found one Zelda joke that I thought was even a little bit funny. Okay. So let's... I believe it. People out there, let's get a little better with the Zelda jokes. We okay. need some better jokes sure. on, the inter, on the interwebs. So I have only one for you guys today, and you'll be you'll be thankful. What kind of yogurt does Ganon eat? I don't know. Danon. Okay. Ah! Let's move on. <laughs> That's wee, awful. Wee. Just because it rhymes? I know. That's, That's a, a little weak. Oh, uh, and that was the best one. I couldn't find any. I believe it. Oof. Nothing came up when you Googled Zelda jokes. I could have just went into video games, but I, it's not like I was even trying to be really specific by saying Zelda linked to the past jokes. It was just very broad Zelda jokes. Couldn't find anything. What's the most overrated game of the last 10 years? And the answer was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And it's not oh, a joke. It's just actually true. We're going to get there. I want to end with that. Yeah. I want to end. I want. I would like to end this show. Spoiler alert! I would like to end this show if it's okay with you, Kyle, to talk about Breath of the Wild a little bit. Okay. Put some historical. Put some modern context on. You know, a modern spin on this topic. Put some respect on it. And I, I have some stuff to say about it as well because we've been. Re- my son and I have been really playing it a lot. You know, it sat in the shrink wrap. You know, very Dagan esque. It sat in the shrink wrap for about two years, and then we finally opened it. <laughs> Got it on opening night. When, make sure I got there at midnight to keep it in the shrink wrap for the next two years. You love doing that. Makes no sense. You do that with everything. Makes absolutely no sense. You don't play anything that you buy. I wait. I want to make wait till it's nostalgic. <laughs> see what I'm doing? See what see, I you're did smart. There? You see, you're thinking about things very... <laughs> you're, you're a distinct and, and distinguished thinker, Dave. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Now, we had a lot of contributions from the audience. As you guys might know, over at patreon.com slash Stand. We let our $2 and up subscribers each month know about the next wave of topics that we're going to record because we record about nine or 10 topics at a time in a three or four day period. And then we reconvene every two or three months to do that again. So we let everyone know over on Patreon what the topics were. And you guys submitted a ton of questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas about The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. And we got a great deal, a great many, let's say, submissions. And I would say about half of them are kind of just general remembrances of the game. I love it. I love it. I love this part. It's one of my favorite parts of the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the what I would call just the general non-question specific, but rather memory or thought driven comments as we open this conversation about a link to the past. And then we'll begin to correspond about what we think about the game and talk about its history and talk about us playing it and what we think of it. And of course, it's one of the great games on Super Nintendo, as I said. So there's much to say about it. Definitely. Now, Dig, let's begin at the top. Okay. Owen wrote into us. And said, it's not often I get to express my thoughts on Link to the Past, but it had a huge impact on my young life. I was eight or nine when I first got to experience the game. I was homeschooled, didn't have any friends, and here comes this little 16-bit hero that I get to name. And all of a sudden, Owen is tasked with saving the world from the evil Ganon. It was the first game I ever played where I felt to be a part of it. Even if I didn't have friends, but that didn't mean I couldn't save the world. Made me feel special every time. Owen, you're tugging at my heartstrings. I hope you've found friends since then. He definitely did. You, you certainly have found friends since then, I hope, Owen. You know, it's funny, Dagan. I wanted to be homeschooled so bad when I was Really? A kid. Yeah. And there was a few years where I was like, just homeschool me. Please homeschool me. I thought it was going to be like the best thing ever. But <laughs> Now, why did you want to be homeschooled? I don't know. I think I liked my solitude. I think I liked the idea of just not... <laughs> not having to do... You know, not dealing with anybody. I mean, even, you know, I'm 34 now. Even when I was 10, 
I would, didn't really want to deal with that. That was your dream. That was my dream, you know. And now I live the dream. <laughs> yes, you do. Tyson Williams wrote into us and said, It's one of my favorite memories of playing the games as a kid. I still replay it from time to time, and I'm still mystified when I find the Master Sword in the Lost Woods. The beginning of the game actually sort of scared me when I was a wee lad. It was so atmospheric and dire. The beginning of the game is awesome with the rain and kind of your uh, uncle giving you the equipment and the telepathic connection between Zelda and Link. Really cool stuff. Also, I like that he brings up the Master Sword because I love when you go into the Lost Woods to get the Master Sword for the first time and the animals are running, like kind of making way for you as you walk up the path. A lot it's, of, it's wonderful. A lot of really cool production notes there, I would yeah, say. Yeah, little details. James Kinslow III wrote into us and said, A Link to the Past is my absolute favorite Zelda game. My aunt introduced me to the game and subsequently to the Super Nintendo. I was a Sega Genesis gamer prior to that. Sorry about that, James. I used to watch my aunt play the hell out of that game and growing up, I spent a lot of time with her and my cousin. She was like a second mom to me. I'm not quite sure what age I was, but I'd say I was between the ages of 10 and 12. I stopped being a voyeur and decided to try the game for myself, and I fell in love with Zelda. Finally, beating Ganon's ass never felt so satisfying. I had beaten games before, but A Link to the Past, man, what an experience. Oh, agreed. It is an experience, this game. Definitely. And I could see falling in love with Zelda specifically through this game more than probably any other one, for, for me at least. Certainly. Certainly. Dan O'Kay wrote into us and said, I remember study, or staying overnight at my buddy's house in grade 8. So we can beat the game from start to finish. We had a guide from GameFAQs and a crap ton of pop. But damn it, we saved Hyrule. I wonder if you <laughs> use my guide from GameFAQs. It's possible. I wonder. Melvin Jones wrote into us and said, My first experience with the game only came a year ago when the SNES Classic came out. I had always heard great things about it, but never had an SNES to play it back in the day. I know all about the various re-releases as well, but just never bothered with it. Zelda has always been a hit or miss with me, but this one is definitely my favorite. I'm happy I've gotten the chance to fill a gap in my gaming history. You have good taste, and I appreciate your honesty for discovering it late i'm actually a little envious because experiencing that game for the first time is a really a special treat it is it's one of those things you know we always talk about with seinfeld or mad men with the other some of the other topics we've done where it's, it would be nice to be able to erase your brain and experience those things for the first time again. absolutely but alas that is not possible justin mikowski wrote in to us justin said my favorite zelda game by far and it hovers between my first or second favorite games of all time depending on my mood Aside from how many greatest of all time contenders there are on SNES, one of the most incredible aspects of games like A Link to the Past was how truly next-gen they felt and looked. As gaming technology becomes increasingly incremental, I doubt we'll ever get that feeling again of seeing Hyrulean rain for the first time, or pulling the Master Sword from its pedestal in the Lost Woods. I still play through A Link to the Past in its entirety at least once a year, and it hasn't lost its touch of wow, magic yet. Wow, Justin, very impressive. And you have good taste. And I to and here, here, I completely hear you. This is in my top five games of all not Zelda games. This is in my top five games of all time. And again, similar to what Justin says, depending on my mood, but easily sometimes I feel like it is my favorite game of all time. And a lot of people feel that way. It's a fantastic it. game. It was cool to see the rain. I will note that Capcom managed to put rain on the NES and Toad Man stage in Mega Man 4. Oh. So there touche. you go. Capcom way ahead of the curve. Touche, my friend. Joshua Anderson wrote into us and said, I honestly have a hard time deciding whether this or Final Fantasy VI is my favorite game of all time. Mm -hmm. I remember as a teen, this was my gateway into RPGs, even though it's not really an RPG. After I played it, I was so blown away, I immediately hopped the bus to Funko Land and asked the clerk for a game just like it. He gave me Final Fantasy VI, which left me in awe. He then gave me Suikoden, then Wild Arms, and just on and on. And Link to the Past is a very special game for me. I'm replaying Link to the Past for the first time now on SNES Classic, and I gotta say, it's as great a game as ever. Wow. Final Fantasy VI, Suikoden, Wild Arms, and Link to the Past. That, was a, that guy had good taste. Absolutely. And finally, for now, 
Brian Booze wrote into us and said, A Link to the Past is my all-time favorite game. It came out in 92, and I believe I got it for Christmas in 93 when I was in third grade. I was old enough to be able to read, comprehend, and figure out puzzles on my own, but young enough where my imagination was still running wild. It was the perfect storm. The world seemed huge, the colors were beautiful, and the music dripped with adventure. That iteration of Hyrule is so full of secrets and wonder, it begs to be explored. I don't imagine a game will ever captivate me in the same way again, and A Link to the Past will likely forever be my all-time favorite. Love you guys and your great chemistry together. Keep the content coming. Thank you. Love you, too. Thank you so much, Brian. We appreciate you. And on that note, Dagan, I want to kick it over to you. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about A Link to the Past and how you feel about it, what it is, okay. your remembrances of it, and we'll go from there. Well, you know what's funny, Kyle? I wanted to ask you about it because I know you and I played it together when you were, you know, when we were younger and you were very young. I know it came out, if I'm not mistaken, it came out in 90, spring of 92, right? April of 92? April 13th, 1992. Uh, so in North America. So, yep. but you know what's funny? I have remembrances of this game. I have remembrances of this game playing it in colder weather. Now, do you remember exactly when we got it? Yes, we got it for, I thought we got it around the time that it came out, but that's not possible because I had assumed be. it was like October or November of 92, but it was earlier. The okay. game came out. In November, late November of 1991 in Japan. Japan. On Super Famicom. And then we got it again, April 13th, 1992 in the US and later in 1992 in Europe, you know, the, the PAL regions and, and elsewhere. And we got it for Christmas that Christmas, 1992, for sure. And I think I received it for Christmas from Santa Claus, of course. Okay. AKA so it was Christmas of 92. So I think that's when we played it. Yeah, because it was okay. cold. It was that time of year. It was the winter time. I definitely, that, I, I think that's correct, because I definitely remember that. And I was trying to figure out, okay, this game came out when I was still in high school, because again, I graduated in 92, so it would have been June of 92, and I don't remember playing it in high school. And I remember the, I remember very specifically the SNES games that I was playing in high school, and I didn't have that sort of patina with this game, so I was wondering about that. I just remember really being immersed in this game, and I specifically remember some very funny memories of literally making excuses not to go out with my friends. And, you know, especially skateboarding, just to stay in and play this game. It's a very similar experience that I had with Final Fantasy 2 on the SNES. And also hoping that it would rain or snow so I could stay in and play this game. I don't remember ever feeling that way about a game before. Now, I probably, I'm sure I had lazy moods. I went through Atari. I went through the whole NES era. There was games that I really loved. There was games that I was really glued to. But I never remember feeling like... I just hope that everything works out that I could just stay in and play this game. I do remember having that feeling about it. And I remember just feeling, I remember a lot of things and we'll get into them, but I just want to talk about my initial thoughts. I remember feeling like, wow, this is how Zelda should be played. I'm talking about 16-bit graphics, that atmosphere that 16-bit graphics are capable of giving to the game. And, you know, that greater color palette, everything about it, the better animation and the nuance to the gameplay, insofar as what Link is capable of doing in the game and the way it feels to control him. I remember that being my first thing, like Zelda automatically comparing it to Zelda and Zelda 2 and being like, no, this is how Zelda should always be. I, and I almost felt like it would be so cool to, I mean, this game obviously feels a lot like Zelda 1 in many ways, the first Zelda in many ways, but actually feeling like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to redo the other games in this style you know i always refer to it in my head as style the style and that's how strongly i felt about it you know this game just immediately got its claws in and i was like well, just completely smitten by it what reflections do you have of playing this together kyle i remember getting like, i remember very clearly getting it and we had this you know somewhat large tube tv in our living room that was on the swivel and 
we didn't really hook our NES up to it, but by the time the SNES came out, which we had gotten the year before, we were hooking it up in the living room with pretty much impunity. It seemed like it was a problem with our parents to like have our NES in the living room. I don't remember ever playing the NES in the living room. No, it never came downstairs. Like we put it in the basement or we've had it in one of our bedrooms or whatever. But with SNES, I remember almost exclusively playing it in the living room. And I don't know like what changed or how that morphed or altered, but it did. I have no idea. And because I remember playing Street Fighter 2 in the living room, which was earlier than Zelda. And I remember... You know, some other stuff, you know, with Super Mario World and Pilot Wings and some of these other games that we were playing early on on the console and just kind of remembering that that big what we would call the den in our old house. Yeah. With the, the skylights, a lot of room, these blue kind of throw oriental carpets or whatever. And I remember getting also the Super Scope 6 at the same time and some other game, you know, with its Super Scope for people that don't know was this really short-lived SNES gun, like light gun peripheral that was basically like a bazooka or like a rocket launcher that you put on your shoulder. It's a cool idea. I was way more excited about playing with it outside <laughs> than playing with it like with a video game. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to like pretend I had a rocket launcher outside. It was That's what I did with it. I think I might have played one game for one minute with it. <laughs> and then I just brought it outside and started, you know, pretending I was shooting shit with it. That's all. You know what, Kyle? I could actually think of, and Dana, our sister Dana might be able to speak better to this, but it might have been a fact of having the Super Nintendo downstairs in the living room, which you're right. I do very specifically remember that as well. Dana, late in high school, was very busy, I think, between schoolwork and between track and soccer and everything. That She was very and work. She worked at the library. She was very involved, Dana. And I think when she was older, it sort of hit the pinnacle of that, like the peak of that. She was never home. And I think her not wanting to watch TV and not getting in her way might have been a big part of that. Like, okay, Dana's never here. Like, I think we could do this now type of thing. She might be able to speak more to that. It'd be funny to talk to Dana about that and see what she remembers. She has a great memory. She does. And it's it's interesting to throw in here that we, there are four Moriarty siblings, Dagan and I, and then our sisters, Dana and Allie. We bring them up all the time. Allie was a bit of a gamer and played video games and liked video games and still likes them in the day. But Dana, I don't remember Dana ever playing anything. I don't think Dana ever took to any video. I couldn't tell you one time that Dana played a video. I don't game. remember ever playing one. I don't recently, know what it would be. Recently, she talked about how that Super Mario, you know, Super Mario Brothers was fun. The first one on NES. But I don't remember her ever playing it. You know, it doesn't mean she didn't. I'm right. sure she did, but I don't remember it. Yeah, she know? just never seemed to take a liking to it for no, some reason. it wasn't for her. And even her own kids, like I just sent them Mega Man 11 and, and her own kids are not allowed to play video games until the weekend. Poor bastards. Yeah, my kids are the same way. That's unbelievable. We used to play video games whenever we wanted. Why are you projecting this shit onto your kids? I don't know. It's my it didn't, we were fine. It's my wife's fault. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's fair enough, I guess. Hi, hon. I, I guess I just remember having a great deal of fun with this game and, and this game feeling revolutionary. And, it, and in, re- in reality, it's not that revolutionary. I mean, when you really get down to brass tacks, it's the original Zelda with a new sheen over it bigger and more organized and more robust but it's very similar in that regard and people have to remember as we've talked about many times that the nes era specifically leading up to zelda link to the past was an era all about experimentation with sequels and we brought up time and time again that castlevania 2 was very different than castlevania 1 and 3 that mario 2 in the west was very different than mario 1 and 3 that the second Zelda game was very different than the first and third Zelda games. This wasn't uncommon to try new things. Now, I don't know why they did this. Yeah, it's but mysterious. It, it's very weird. Like, I don't know why they made The Legend of Zelda in 86 and then in 88 they released Zelda 2 and it's just radically different. Don't really understand that, but appreciate and respect that. But the cool thing about it is that they always seem to get back to the formula that worked and they did it better the third time around. So by the time you got to Castlevania 3, you got a really robust iteration and spin on the original Castlevania that's like 10 times better than the original Castlevania which is in and of itself and a fantastic game 
you know, when you get to the third Zelda game in this regard, you have a Zelda game that's very similar to the first Zelda game, but robust and huge, just like Mario, just like whatever the case might be. And that's kind of what I remember taking away from it as time went on was it wasn't exactly a new formula. It was just a very refined game. And I think the refinement came from the fact that it took so long to make and they took their time with it. And also that we never really had played something like this before, even though, again, we had the original Legend of Zelda on NES. And even though that was one of NES's most important games and best selling games, it was still this open ended, old feeling game with very little dialogue, nothing really telling you what to do. And this new game had a soul that the original Zelda just couldn't fit in its small exactly. chipset, basically. You know, that's basically the difference between the games. The graphics are obviously different. The abilities of the SNES are obviously quite different than the abilities of the NES, and that portrays itself well in the game. But that's kind of like my early remembrance, if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, very, very well said. Thank you. So just to give people a little bit of background as we get into things. As we said, the original Legend of Zelda was an early NES game that came out on Famicom in Japan in 86, and in the West, it began rolling out in 87, and its sequel, The Adventures of Link, which was called Zelda 2, again, a very different game than the original, came out on Famicom, and I think Famicom Disk System in 87, and then it came out in the NES and elsewhere in the world uh, in 88. And The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past was originally referred to as Zelda 3, and if you go and read like old Nintendo Powers and old gaming magazines, it's often referred to as Zelda 3. And they began building it on NES. Now, I was reading that there were some rumors at some point that that build did leak and the Zelda 3 that is lost to history like exists somewhere. And I'm sure it does exist somewhere in Nintendo's hollowed halls and in their archives and stuff like that. In finished form? Maybe not in finished form, but something like that. You know what? It reminds me a great deal of, I don't think this is a perfect analog, but there's a fully translated version of NES or Final Fantasy 2, the proper Final Fantasy 2 on NES. It's done. They just never released it. That's and then finally they, you know, and it was in magazines. It was at like CES one year and they just never released the game. And so it would stand to believe that they have this game or at least portions of this game somewhere, you know, running on NES. And, you know, they began building the game as soon as Zelda 2 was out in the West. They began building it in 1988. And what I like reading about it is that it reminds me a great deal of the way game development teams work today, where game development teams start small, build the idea remain really nimble and try to get the feature set in place and all of that. And then they start stacking up people and they start building their full team. And when you read about the Link to the Past's development cycle, you realize that it wasn't until the fall of 1990. So just a year before the game came out in Japan, that the full team was assembled and they really started working on it. And they, you know, had started fully porting the game to the SNES because even the SNES couldn't handle some of the things that they wanted to do in the game. And they use this anecdote about how, Miyamoto had this idea of how things would be set on fire and that the fire would spread. And depending on what you lit on fire, whether it was trees or grass or whatever, and the SNES just can handle those things, which is super interesting as well. So cool. Now, in Japan, A Link to the Past was called the Triforce of the Gods. And obviously, and I think a lot of people know this, that Nintendo of America had a real aversion to religious iconography and religious text in their games. And we usually use games like Castlevania to emphasize that. But I was always confused, Dave, why there was such a separation between Nintendo of Japan and Nintendo of America with this. Like, you're going to straight up name this seminal Zelda game, this big AAA game exclusive for your console, this one thing, and then your American counterparts are like, no, we have a problem with a bunch of the shit in the game, including yeah. the title, and we rename it. You think they would be more in lockstep? I would think so. You know, NOA always just seemed notoriously just worried and stressed out about North Americans, Americans and Canadians, I guess, taking exception to the religious iconography in the games they really they were really worried that people were going to be offended by it 
you know, I and I wonder, I really wonder had they done it, had they just released the game, not even the title, but just the, oh, maybe even the title, how, really would it have affected anything? I don't know. I don't know. I speak from a Northeasterner's perspective, maybe, which is a little different than maybe the Midwest and different pockets of the country are different and people are different wherever you went. And, you know, back then things were a little different, but I wonder if they were, you know, worried for nothing as it was, you know. I do wonder where this fear even came from, like where this fear stems from. It must come from somewhere. And I got to plead ignorance on it. I just don't know where they got so paranoid or when they got so paranoid about what was going on with the really game because it's weird. It is. It is. It didn't seem like a lot of their competitors were worried about it. Certainly people in the arcade weren't worried about it. Sega wasn't worried about they it. They weren't. So NEC wasn't. Yeah, it's very interesting that they were just very concerned about it. But nonetheless, the Triforce of the Gods became A Link to the Past. And I actually think A Link to the Past is a better name. I want to ask you about that. Do you think the punny title is cheesy or is it a good idea how do you feel about that have you ever really given it a lot of thought it is punny i think i look at it as a double entendre i mean it clearly is but i try to ignore that it just is a link to the past like i think beyond link's name i mean that's who that's his name even though as we said earlier from one of the listener submissions you name link whatever you want so he's basically just the vessel for you to experience the game but yeah i'm not crazy about the double entendre aspect of it but i think the name is very appropriate and i like the name a lot you it's, do one, like it's one of my favorite you know subtitles for a zelda game for sure it works it definitely works it definitely works a great deal it's also worth noting that the snes cartridge that played zelda was twice as big as even some of the contemporary SNES games, you know, it's amazing to think like there's basically one megabyte of data on this cartridge, which is unthinkable, just absolutely impossible to put that into context. This MP3 is going to be about probably 180 or 200 megabytes, just the audio alone for this particular podcast that we're recording that you're listening to right now. So at one megabyte and we they use different terminology it's like four megabits and stuff like that whatever they used back then yeah our podcast will be t- about 200 times bigger in space than a link to the past was isn't that amazing on the entire game yeah really remarkable stuff that's crazy and you know even using some compression and stuff like that so i i think it's all really interesting but talk to me a little bit about the gameplay and talk to me a little bit about what it's like to experience a link to the past because i think that it really is a game that play so wonderfully and play so fluidly but it still has that familiar take because it really is just a spin and an iteration on the original legend of zelda very similar indeed not so much from mario 1 to mario 3 but from mario 3 to super mario world it's a very similar kind of jump where yes you know how to play it you understand the fundamentals of it but it is just different it is just bigger and it is just more dynamic absolutely than the one that came before it. very well said it's amplified it's it's that original thing taken to the next level with these new tools. And I think even as kids, we realized that. And I think that familiarity and sort of echoing what already existed, it was an easy way in. You know, it felt familiar, but it felt improved. It felt better. And I think that that spoke to really clever game design on Nintendo's part. Because, again, they didn't just do that with games like Zelda. They did it with the Mario games, with which you mentioned, and Metroid, and just amplifying things taking things from 8-bit to 16-bit essentially you know doubling the capability of a game and doubling the capability of what you could do in that game and what you could see in that game and what you could experience in that game i it's so funny Kyle, because i still think 16-bit is the best place for zelda i think that 16-bit graphics you know we always talk about it's always part of the conversation it's so funny but people that know 16-bit games part of the conversation is always the atmosphere the atmosphere in the game and what it is is that 2d sprite it's 2d sprites taken to a level that 
really can immerse you. It becomes very immersive and very illustrative and lush. And that's exactly what Zelda was. And we could, we could also talk about games like Super Metroid, games that we inherently remember as being particularly atmospheric. I would even argue that Super Mario World is very atmospheric as well. And again, that's a, you know a classic formula, sort of turbocharged, taken to the next level. And I always thought that about Link to the Past. And we always talk about the atmosphere, but it can't be overstated. The atmosphere in Link to the Past is so... It just immerses you in the game. It's it's the first thing that immerses you in the game before you're even really getting into the gameplay and how things feel. You're experiencing how things look and sound. And it's very, very immersive. And you know what's so funny about it? I had an experience with this game. It was such a joy to go back and play this game for the episode. And I played it on my original Super Nintendo. I don't know what copy of the game this is i do have a copy of the game but i believe it's yours and i don't know if it's our original copy of the game or not but i did play my original super nintendo with my original one of my original controllers and it's so funny i don't know if you remember this call but i remember being struck by this when i was younger and i it totally got me again i forgot about it there's a spot early in the game where you're exploring and you're trying to get into the castle but the guards are driving you away and now it's late at night the kids are in bed it's probably like i, I always popped in the game probably somewhere between 11 and one in the morning and played for a couple, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours. And so I have the lights off. I love playing like that. It's just very nostalgic for me. And, you know, the lights are off. I'm in my office. I'm playing the game. And one of the guards tells you, go to bed. You shouldn't be up this late. And I remember being like, what? Like, you know, it's it's like almost like he was talking to me, you know, and I remember experiencing that twice and being surprised by it twice. So that was really a lot of fun. But that's just emblematic of this game as a whole. I think it really sucks you in. And I think it initially does that with the graphics and sound. But then you get into the gameplay and how things feel. And this game, for me, it's brilliant in the way that it feels to swing the sword. It's brilliant in the way that it feels to walk around and destroy the bushes to look for jewels. And the sound of things and the tink of the boomerang off of things that it can't destroy. Like the t- Even the little nuances like the tink of the boomerang off of stone. And the way it sounds when you cancel a menu. You know, it sounds like a pot when you're going into a menu, it's like a positive sound. These are all gameplay things that are well trodden, but this game was one of the pioneers in making it feel so strong and making it feel so right. It feels so right that you don't even think about it, really. It just feels amazing. Like, you know, as you're going into a menu, there's a certain sound effect. And then as you're sort of getting out of the menu or canceling, it's giving you a, you know, a deeper sound effect, a deeper tone. Those little things in the game that are just so pleasing. And then you, also, a big part of this game is the progression, and that I realized it a lot, especially playing this time around, that as the game presents different challenges to you, and as essentially it's getting more challenging and, more, and harder, and the dungeons are getting more difficult, the exploration is getting more difficult, the enemies in certain areas that are opening up are getting more difficult, your abilities are changing and evolving. So, you know, you have... You know, your sword slash technique. Now you're able to do the, your dash with the sword out. You're able to accumulate different items that do different things. So there's something really inherently appealing and very satisfying about that. And the game is very careful to make it, it never gets boring. As soon as you're like, all right, I've dodged everywhere and I've dodged through enemies and it was fun. Then the next ability opens up. Like then now you're able to freeze guys. It's always on to the next thing and it's very carefully stepped out i don't remember a game being this carefully stepped out 
where it's like as soon as you think there might be an inkling of boredom setting in, the next thing sort of sweeps you up. And then you're like, oh, it's a, this is a brand new game again. It's brilliant. And you spoke to it a little bit before. They really did want to take this to the next level as far as like, you know, if you use your candle in the wrong spot, you're going to end up burning down things and having a negative or an adverse effect on things. Or I know they wanted to do a thing where you combine certain weapons together to form like a, a special weapon. And there was going to be some kind of alchemy involved with how and experimentation with how you could form a weapon out of two weapons or two, uh, an ability basically out of two different weapons. And they couldn't very Miyamoto-esque and very Nintendo-esque. They had so many ideas that they couldn't even put them into this game. And they put they put some of these ideas into later iterations of Zelda. But that was always the thing that struck me about this game was just how appealing it was, how inviting it was, and how it had, there's an easiness to it that's very welcoming, even though the game is the game is somewhat challenging. I mean, I guess in retrospect, if you compare it to all of your gameplay, at least for me, to all my gameplaying experiences, it probably falls into the, some of the easier on the easier side, but that doesn't mean it's not a lot of fun. And I wanted to just end this before I pass it over to you, Kyle, with asking you a question before I forget. How do you feel about Zelda in general, but we could take it into, we could frame it with this game. How do you feel about Link? It always, let me put it this way. It always frustrated me that Link wasn't more of a fleshed out character and that you were really supposed to be Link. You know, you were the surrogate for that character and that he was supposed to be this underdeveloped thing that was left open. That always bothered me. I always wanted to see Link as a more fleshed out character to the point where I would name my character Link. Right. I did this. I used to do the same. Do you, how did you feel about that? I don't appreciate, I don't think, that aspect of it the way other people appreciate it because I think people like the empty vessel kind of thing. And, and there are characters that are somewhat like that even in other role-playing games where, you know, like, for instance, Final Fantasy VII, Cloud is a more fleshed out protagonist, but you're really still encapsulating his experience and seeing things through his eyes. There's just a story and a name put to it as opposed to it it being this kind of amorphous and totally random thing. And so I always had a problem with that too. And I always loved as well naming my character Link because I wanted to be true to it. And it's so funny. I don't know if it's in this game and other games where I let you use capital letters and lowercase letters. I think it does. you know, a lot of people just use all the caps, but I always try to be really careful about using, you know, the, you know, spelling like a proper noun so that it would fit into the sentences. So when your name was put into a sentence that was being used by an NPC or something like that, it wouldn't just stand out as like this big thing, like link in all capital letters and stuff like that. <laughs> that's I think awesome. it was in this game, but I certainly used to do that in other games wow, as well. that's so thoughtful. But I think what's so interesting about the Zelda games specifically, but I think, you know, A Link to the Past, certainly in the mid, you know, the early to mid 90s rather, is that it filled me with this sense of awe of exploration that was there in the original Zelda, but because the original Zelda can only do so much to portray its world and because a lot of it felt the same and the dungeons certainly felt the same. I mean, if you look at, you know, the original Zelda's dungeons, they're pretty much identical to one another, not in terms of layout, but in terms of, you know, obviously soundtrack, which isn't necessarily uncommon and obviously keys and boss keys and all that kind of stuff. And you're fighting different bosses. But just in terms of the aesthetic, like nothing really felt that different. You were finding and using different weapons, whether it was the bow or the bombs or whatever the case might be. And I really enjoyed, you know, the almost Metroidvania proto or pre Metroidvania esque nature of the Zelda games where you would see a shattered or broken up wall that you know that you can come back to at some other point in the future to blow up with bombs because there's something in there interesting, whether it's like a fairy fountain or whether some rupees are are in there being hidden or whatever. So there was a real sense of exploration in this game that didn't exist in action-oriented, non-turn-based games of the time because when we played games like Final Fantasy IV or we played Fantasy Star or any of those kinds of games, these turn-based games that told great stories and 
and immerse you, it was different in combat. Like Zelda was an active game. You know, the a Link to the Past is an active game that you actively play. It doesn't stop moving. And I think that that's one of the things that I like about it as well. And someone earlier had said, even though it's not an RPG, we look at it as an RPG and it's certainly an action role playing game in many different ways. Yeah. Link doesn't have statistics, but he does have an inventory and, you know, equipment and stuff like that, that I think kind of lends to that role playing credence. And I understand why people consider it that even though technically it probably isn't necessarily a role playing game, you know. Now, I guess we should give a little bit of a shout out to, I guess, some of the key players that help make this game, Dig, because I think, you know, without them, obviously we wouldn't have the game at all. Takashi Tezuka is the director of the game, and this dude's a G. I mean, if you read about all of the games that he has made, he, along with the other guys I'm going to mention, by the way, are all still with Nintendo, which I love. And it's amazing thinking about these guys in their 20s or maybe their 30s working on these games, and now they're in charge of pretty much everything at Nintendo. And, well, I think they've really earned their positions, but... Tezuka-san also directed the original Zelda. He directed Mario 3. He directed Super Mario World. He directed right later on Link's Awakening, which, of course, is the Game Boy. That's the fourth Link, you know, mainline Zelda game that's on Game Boy. And he, he developed what I think is a largely and vastly overrated game, Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. But, you know, he was there from the very beginning. You know, he worked as, you know, an assistant director on the original, Mar- on the original Mario. Rather, he wrote the script for the original Zelda and in the N64 wow. era, he kind of moved into a supervisory and production role at the company and has worked on a ton of games. You guys can go look into that. So we got to give a shout out to Takashi. He's Tezuka. still there. Yeah, he's still there. Big boss now. He went from mini boss to big boss. Exactly. Indeed. The composer, Koji Kondo, I think everyone knows who he is. He also did composition and sound on all the Mario games, the previous Zelda games. He's still with Nintendo as a composer, a sound designer, a supervisor. Awesome. All of that iconic stuff you think about with Zelda, not only in terms of the compositions themselves, of course, these iconic songs, but the sound effects. Like Dagan was saying earlier, the you know the hook shot or the boomerang bouncing off the things, the way the bomb sounds, the the mystical and magical sound when you open a secret or open a treasure chest, like that kind of stuff, all comes from Koji Kondo, who is a legend in video game music and video game audio and he's still with nintendo as well and of course the producer of the game is shigeru miyamoto who was really the brainchild and the designer of zelda and you know he often told stories about how zelda was really designed on his own exploits as a youth and exploits as a child in the woods around his house in japan and that that sense of exploration and him wanting to kind of encompass that and what's so funny about it and what's so interesting about it is that we take certain things for granted, certain ways of playing and certain play styles for granted. And I often talk about 2D side scrollers as being a really great example of that. We had 2D side scrollers before we had Super Mario Brothers on NES and Famicom, you know, Pitfall and those kinds of games. But the reality is, is that Mario pioneered the side scroller in the same way that, you know, Wolfenstein 3D pioneered the first person shooter, even if you might be able to find other first person S games that you could technically say, like, this is the prototypical first first person shooter. We know what it looks like and we know where it came from. Right, right. And with this particular style of game, there was really nothing like this. We had turn based and active role playing games that had similar, you know, top down perspectives, whether you're talking about Ultima on PC, whether you're talking about whatever the case might be, the Final Fantasy four, which we just brought up on SNES, which came out the year before. But this kind of play was new and it takes a mind like Miyamoto's to be able to put this into action. This game is incredibly ambitious 
And I'm not only talking about A Link to the Past again, but the previous Zelda game from the mid-80s, the original Zelda game. These were ambitious, massive games. And you have to think that three years prior to that, people were playing Space Invaders and Miss Pac-Man and shit like that. And there's nothing wrong with those games. I love both those games very dearly. Right. But we were playing score-chasing, repeatable, coin-hogging games. And then three years later, you were playing Zelda. It's crazy to think about. And it's really a remarkable thing that someone had the foresight and the knowledge and the ability to make an action role-playing game and an action-adventure game just like that. So we have to give a shout-out to the very legendary Shigeru Miyamoto, who has his hands in virtually anything you've ever played that has a Nintendo icon on it. A Link to the Past is also technically the longest Zelda game by Dungeon, with 12 dungeons. You have three Light World dungeons, you have Hyrule Castle at the end of the Light World, then you have what, six dungeons or so in the Dark World and then yeah. Ganon's Tower. So it is the longest game in Majora's Mask, obviously, on the other end with four dungeons, I think, is the shortest Zelda game. And it wasn't matched in length until its sequel, A Link Between Worlds, came to DS, I think, in 2013 or 2012. So there's all of those things that I think we have to consider as well. I always like to think about the people behind the games and really making sure we give them their shine and their accolades because of their brilliant minds and what they were able to kind of do with it. It was amazing. Now... The story of the game, do you find the story important? I mean, the story is simple. There's a simplicity to the story. I think it's very easy to accept. There's nothing really crazy going on with it. I don't think it's the story that's really driving you in this game. I think it's really the world that's driving you. You know, what would you say about that? I agree. Like, I don't really know too much about it. Like, <laughs> I've beaten Only to the Past 20 times probably in my life. And you know about the different characters and the different players. You know, you're... You have like your uncle in the beginning. Aghanim is kind of like this evil wizard that's like kind of taking out the king of Hyrule and is like ruling over Hyrule. And then you obviously have Ganon and these various bosses. Favorite amongst them for me is Cold Stare, of course, in the Dark World. But the story itself never really mattered to me. And what's so funny is that I was reading about like, I'm like, what is the literal plot of this story? Like the game, I don't really remember. And it's really about seven maidens being kind of sent and sealed away into this kind of parallel dark world that is parallel to the light world or the normal world. And that Zelda, the princess of Hyrule, is just one of those seven maidens. And she is sealed away, but she has a telepathic link to Link <laughs> that allows them to kind of communicate. And he goes and, and kind of rescues her. And I've, I've kind of understood some of that as I moved along, but it just never really mattered. And I actually think that that's a compliment to the game. That it's really the gameplay, the aesthetic and kind of the environment that you're in playing it that matters way more than the reason why you might be playing it, which is so very different from contemporary games, and dare I say, different in many ways from even contemporary Zelda games in some respect, where it's like, who really cares? Who knows what's going on in the game? It's just you're trying to get the next piece, the pe next pendant, the next piece of the Triforce, whatever right. the case might be. And I think that that's, you know, not always necessary and not always desirable from a gameplay perspective. Sometimes you want a strong narrative and sometimes you want a reason to do. Yeah. But the reason to do in A Link to the Past is because it's fun. And I think that that's meaningful. Yeah, that's what's driving you forward. Indeed. You know there's that baddie that you have to destroy at the end. You know you're on that sort of broad, that mission with painted with broad strokes, but it's just fun to get there. The journey is really what you're what you're on board for. Yeah, almost to the point where you're sorry this, to feel this, when you feel like this game's coming to an end, you're really kind of lamenting that. You know, you're sort of like, oh man, really? You know, but I was having so much fun, you know? It's just not hinging on the story, which is nice. It's just different. You know, we play so many games today that are so narrative and story driven and, and well written. And that's great. And voice acting and all that kind of stuff and lots of dialogue, thousands of lines of dialogue. And that doesn't exist in this game. I will say that the one thing this game doesn't do that well that I wish it did better was that it doesn't feel populated. There's 
a village towards the western side of the map that's populated with a few houses and stuff like that. And there's like a witch's, you know, cavern on the eastern edge of the map and some people you run into here and there. But it doesn't feel like the stakes are very high because there just doesn't seem to be anyone in the world that's suffering because of what's going on, which is definitely something that is worth noting. But again, because the story isn't important and you're just playing it as a conduit through Link, I don't know that it really matters. Yeah, I know what you mean by that. I, I It's a really great point, and I think it's something that I want to get into later with Breath of the Wild and how that makes you feel. For me, and I haven't heard a lot of people say this, so maybe it's just a very personal you know, reflection for me on Breath of the Wild, but to me, the world inherently feels cold because it, there's not a lot of people in it. It feels like everything's very spread out. It doesn't feel like one of the earlier Zelda games where it feels like there's a lot of people. There's a lot of... And I think that's a great way to put it. That's a a great way to frame it is that there's not... How urgent can it be? There's no one here to... There's no one here to harm. For some reason, Link to the Past, for me, doesn't feel cold. But I could see that point. If the world felt more populated... Now, that world feels populated with bad guys. But where are all the villages? Where are all the good guys? That's a very intrinsic thing and a very a thing that you have to be careful in game design with that I think could be easily overlooked because you're concentrating on the graphics and the gameplay and the boss fights and the dungeons and things like that. But you have to make that world feel inherently populated and that there's things there that are in danger. There's people there. There's villages there that are in danger. And this bad guy's presence is creating a real threat. And that's a big part of it. And it's true. That's a, I don't know if I ever really thought about it with this game, but it doesn't feel that well populated, this world. I guess my perspective on the original Zelda on NES was that there was no one in it because you weren't in a place where you would find anyone and the world didn't seem that big. It's a big grid. It's, you know, you can go look at my guides on GameFAQs to see I have ASCII maps of it. It's a big enough grid. But I always felt like that was taking place outside of the realm of society where it was like, you know, in some faraway land or some kind of obscure, isolated place that you're necessarily not going to run into anyone except for maybe some merchants in caves and the old man giving you the sword and selling you shit. And so... For the narrative, that made sense. And I think with Zelda 2 on NES, they tried to make it feel more lived in by putting you into towns and making you talk and have dialogue and all those kinds of things, which is great. And I love that. And I think that that's really cool. But with this, it kind of fuses both of those games in such a way that doesn't feel quite right because the stakes don't feel as high as if the town was populated. But I will say this, Dagan, that that's a problem with many games, many role-playing games. And it's only more recently in games that I've played like Dragon Quest Eleven and other games where I'm like, this game feels like it's alive. The Tales games, the latter Tales games do that as well. Okay. Where it's like, these places seem big. There's tons of people. You can't talk to all of them. You can't barge into their houses, but these buildings exist and yeah. this world is going on around you. And so, again, it raises the stakes and makes it feel like you're playing for something, which is cool. And with this... There's just a popular, what is there, like 15 characters in the game? There's not that many people in the game. No. Although I'll give a shout out to the quarreling brothers in that one house. (laughs) And the reason I'm going to give a shout out to them is because I learned the word quarrel because of them. Is that right? Yes. A word that I use quite often in my vocabulary comes from me being like, what the hell does that mean when I was a kid? quarreling brothers. And looking it up in in an analog dictionary and being like, what does quarreling mean? Wow. It just means that they're fighting. Who says that video games aren't educational? Again. That comes up in so many of our episodes. I 100% learned that word from that, for sure. I love that yes. memory. Yes, indeed. And you see them again again at the end of the game, don't you? Indeed, you do. Yeah, yes. Indeed, you do. The Quarreling Brothers. Now, Brian Borlaug wrote into us, like you can, if you are a supporter of us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. He says, A Link to the Past, what a game. This is most definitely a top three or five game for me. I remember renting the game, deleting those other poor sap saves. I used to love doing that, too, as I've said, and just being in awe of what they had made. I was so confused as a child as to what to do, even getting lost in the beginning and not knowing how to get into the castle. That game taught me so much about how to play games and gaming design overall. I kept finding new things every time I played it. 
Once we finally owned it, I dumped in way too much time. I still remember finding new things out about the game in Nintendo Power. Getting the upgrades for the sword, shield, arrows, tunic, etc. seems so insane to me, but made so much sense as you played along. The menu screen full of items, shout out to catching fairies in the bottles for revives. The dungeon designs, the boss design, I can go on. I love this game more than Ocarina, but only as a personal preference. I beat the game again when the SNES Classic came out, and my god, it was like riding a bike. I remembered everything. I don't know if I'll ever get that fresh feeling again, but how about that first moment when the dark world opens up? Like, holy shit, there's a second world. Now, this isn't a really important part of the game. The original Zelda game had eight dungeons, and you could play a second quest that would give you eight more dungeons in a reworked way, which is kind of a well-kept secret of that game, and something I didn't even know until the 90s that you could do that. So... The original Zelda is actually still technically a much bigger game than A Link to the Past in its own way, even though you can kind of cruise through it much quicker. It basically just takes everything and kind of reshakes it, like re-rolls the dice, which I think is a really cool idea. But in this game, you do three dungeons in a certain order, and then you go to Hyrule Castle and fight Aghanim, and you realize that he's not really behind the plot, but Ganon's behind the plot, and you're transported, or able to transport back and forth, ultimately, between the Dark World and the Light World. And you go into the first dungeon in the Dark World and the special weapon, as you guys know in Zelda, there's usually a special item in every dungeon that allows you to beat that dungeon, but it can also be used in the real world and in other places. You get the hammer, the mallet, and it lets you smash these like circular cylindrical pillars down that allow you to explore the rest of the Dark World. And I remember that because once you get through that, there's a non-linearity to A Link to the Past that people don't appreciate. I think there's eight or nine different permutations in which you can beat the game from that point Mm, on, mm -hmm. which is super cool. And something that a lot of people didn't realize, that there's no specific order you have to do things in because it's wide open. So it's the first and in some ways one of the only non-linear Zelda games when it really comes down to it like that, which I think is super when cool. When it gets to that point. Right, exactly. And it shifts, which is amazing. It's yeah, exactly right. Very and cool. one of my memories, which I find somewhat unsettling, because someone was saying that they find some things unsettling in this, is when you go to the Dark World for the first time, when you're when you're climbing the mountain in the north and you find yourself in the Dark World for the first time, but you don't have the Moon Pearl equipped. So you're this weird bunny like creature, basically. Yep. And it's so weird and unsettling. And then you find this Moon Pearl that allows you to kind of retain your human form in this very altered universe that's parallel to the real world. When I, I remember experiencing that for the first time and experiencing that for that for the first time just filled me with such wonder because... It is worth noting that even though there were great games on the NES, and even though I love the NES more than the SNES, games just weren't able to be that deep on the NES. There just was no there was no room for yeah, it. Yeah, not yet. And I just loved that. I it was so unsettling being on Death Mountain and just being like, "What the fuck is going on here? Yeah, I can't use my weapons. I'm like this weird creature. Everyone's talking to me weird. One of the characters I think is like a bouncing ball. You know, it's like very very unsettling. And then suddenly you find this thing that allows you to kind of be in that world, but be your light world self. Do you remember going to the dark world Absolutely. for the first time? And I remember being freaked out about it again upon playing it again. And, and just still, even though you know, inherently you really know, having that feeling like, oh my God, what did I just do? Did I just fuck everything up right now by going here too soon, doing this, at, you know, before I was really ready to be here? So there's really that feeling, which is such a, you know, the game, cha- which is the game challenging you and the game challenging your expectations as well. And, you know, putting to a spot that nobody could have possibly expected upon first playing that game and having to have that item so you can charge into that world and succeed and do it and uh, complete your mission. And I, I also read originally that they wanted to make it three shifting worlds that you could shift between, but they just didn't have the, the size and the scope of that was too was too much. And I'm sure the budget got to be too much. But can you imagine that? Very complicated. And combined with what you were saying, too, about like the more robust inventory system that they envisioned as well. It's a common tale in game development, and I'm sure it's a common tale in animation and other things, too, and other creative endeavors. It always starts big and ends up small. And 
sequels typically are the ones that end up kind of more exuding what the original kind of look and feel and play of the game was intended to be because they were able to finally wrap their minds around doing it. You hear that all the time. So that's why Assassin's Creed 2 is considered so good. That's why mm. Uncharted 2 is considered so good, etc. and so on, because they just were not able to execute. And there's almost an expectation that once you execute on something, you'll be able to, you'll be able to iterate on it again. Yeah. The interesting thing about this is this is kind of a direct sequel to the original Zelda. So you're actually kind of seeing a more robust version of that game. Absolutely. You know what and I, mean? I you know what else I love about that, Kyle? Ideas that don't make it into a game, an iteration of a game. I like that that sort of proofing period where if that IP and that property is going to continue, if that idea is really a good one, it's going to make it in at some point. And sort of having that withstand that idea withstand the test of time and eventually making it in and earning its spot in the game is kind of, there's kind of a neat thing to that that I really dig. And you could see that with Zelda, you know, like we talked about. Talk to me about a little bit about the inventory. What I, what I mean by that is the weapons and items and equipment that you find throughout the game. There are very typical Zelda fare here, like bow and arrows, bombs and boomerangs and whatnot. Right. But this is the first one with the hook shot in it. Hook There's shot. the bug net. And there are these magical kind of metals, medallions that you can use to create earthquakes and all those kinds of things. And what I like the most about it, Dagan, is the idea that you don't have to find everything. Now, this is... in something that is drawn from the original Zelda 2, which is the same thing, where you don't need both candles. You only need one. Yes. You know, I think the blue candle is the weaker one. The red one is the stronger one, if I recall, in the original Zelda. And yeah. one you could only use once per screen, and the other you can spam. But you really didn't need the second one, and you didn't need to find all the hard pieces, and you didn't need to find the upgraded swords, and you didn't need to find etc., etc., etc. So that's not new to a link, a link to the Past, but I felt there was way more in this game that just didn't need to be there. And that's what's so exciting about it to me is that it has a lot of different ways that can be played. And that ties us into this kind of inquiry from our listener, Luke Tucker. Luke wrote in and said, Good day, Moriarty bros. My first foray into serious gaming was The Legend of Zelda on the NES. As an eight or nine-year-old, I got so good at it via practice and utilizing the paper map that came with the instructions that I completed it and the second quest, beating my teenage neighbor to accomplishing the feat. So when Link to the Past came along, I was blown away. It is definitely one of the games that made the SNES my favorite console. Can you guys talk about your memories of playing through it as kids? And if you ever had neighborhood challenges while, while trying to be the first to complete single player epics, keep the nostalgia flowing, guys. Knockback rules. Thank you, Luke. Thank I you. wanted to bring this story updating because I'm wondering, did you ever try to challenge yourself to not collect everything or to not get all the heart pieces, to not get the magic upgrades? Because I am way too OCD where I have to do it all. And I have to do it, by the way, as quickly as possible. Yeah. So once you get a certain item, I go out of my way to use that item all around the map to do everything I can with it. Then I go do the next dungeon and get the next item. And then I I do everything oh. I can with that. And I wrote a very succinct flow chart in my FAQ on GameFAQs that tells you, like, this is the order that you can get everything as soon as you can get it. So it's like... And this is what you could do with it when you obtain it? Right, exactly. So it's it was a, what I would call a spoiler-free walkthrough, where it's like, you get X, now that you have X, you can go get Y, Z, <laughs> and A. Amazing. Then now that you have A, you can go get Z. Now do the dungeon, get the item in there. Now that you have X, now you can go do this, this, and this. Then you wow. go to the next dungeon, and so on and so forth. That's how I like to play but Zelda. But you had to learn that. You had to go through all those Yeah, I learned it, and you learn it from Nintendo Power, and you learn it from playing it yourself, and you know all of those kinds of things. And then you learn how to put it in kind of your own order, and your own kind of, you know your own kind of panache on it, okay. as it were, you know? Okay. Because there's only so many ways you can beat the game. No, yeah. you know what, Kyle? I didn't play that game this much. I didn't get that deep into this game, I'll admit. I played it through, I beat it, but I never played it that way. Now, I'll preface this by saying, and Kyle knows me a little bit, I don't play with guides and stuff like that. At least 90% of the time, I didn't play with guides. I just didn't believe in that. But a lot of times, that, would, that, was, a, that was kind of a stubbornness with me, that a lot of times what I did 
by doing that and by adhering to that philosophy so consistently was that I would miss things. I would just miss things in games. I would beat a game, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't get the good ending or I would miss, I would inadvertently miss items and objects. Now, what I loved about Link to the Past was that the inventory system, like the game as a whole, the inventory system felt familiar but amplified. You had the bombs, they worked the same way. You had arrows, you had the boomerang, and so on and so forth. And of course, you had new items. You had, you know, what, is it the ice rod? Is yeah, it, there's the, the ice rod, rod, and a fire the, rod. the bug net, the, the hook shot, all that kind of stuff. So it felt like a, a blending, like a lot of this game to me that I loved and what was so pleasing about it was it felt like a combination of old and new. And I think that's what I really inherently loved about the inventory system. It felt familiar and then it felt like taking it to the next level. But I didn't play that way. I didn't play to... And I think a big part of it for me was like, I don't want to look at things. I just want to figure out things, which is a stubborn. I'm not really a stubborn person, but when it comes to that, for some reason, I was very stubborn about it. I just didn't want the game ruined for me. And I wanted to figure it out myself because I thought that for me, I thought that was the most satisfying thing was to beat it without help, quote unquote. And also, let me preface this by saying, guys, a lot of you guys were younger when you first played. I was 18 years old or I was going on 18 or going on 19 or whatever. I was an older guy. So... I should have been able to beat this game without cheats and codes and maps and Nintendo power and stuff like that. Now, I will also say that I think this game is the perfect balance of, I think we all, look, we all love the original Zelda. It's a brilliant game, but it was a little obtuse and a little cryptic. Now, it was the original obtuse and cryptic game, you would argue, but this game wasn't that hard. A lot of it can't be overstated. We already knew the formula. We already knew the drill. We had to look for things. We had to find the staircase under the bush. We already knew this from the Zelda game, so we already had experience. So automatically, this game wasn't going to be as hard as the first one. But for me, I wish I kind of did take your approach and sort of find an item and fully utilize it. Because that, to me, that's maximizing the experience of the game. And maybe I'll actually go back and try that now that I've beaten it a few times. To me, that's squeezing every ounce of enjoyment from the game. And also finding everything that all the designers and programmers work so hard to get into it. So I really do like that philosophy. But I have to admit, I, I didn't play like that as a teenager. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with not playing like that. I think, you know, it's funny because we got a question from Jack Yorston who asked very, something very similar. He said, I only played Link to the Past for the first time within the last couple of years. For the first few hours, I did enjoy myself. But around the point where the dual world mechanic was introduced, I began to wonder, is the game too obtuse? What are your thoughts on its accessibility by today's standards? Oh, perfect timing. And I think that that last question is what's most essential to what he's asking. What do you think about the accessibility by today's, today's standards? standards? By today's standards, Link to the Past is incredibly inaccessible. And I think that that's true for a lot of games. Games today are just way easier than they used to be, generally speaking. That's why people, I think, take so much to Bloodborne and Dark Souls and stuff like that, because they're legitimately fucking hard games. Yeah. I mean, Bloodborne is fucking hard. Listen, I like hard games. Everyone knows that I like hard games. I think I have some skill at games. I usually play my games on hard difficulty. And Bloodborne is really, really hard. That game kicked my ass when I played it. it I played, played it for dozens of hours. And just you don't get anywhere. You really? know, but you want to just keep playing it for some reason. You know, it's so like there's no room for mistakes. You can't make mistakes in it. You think like you have to keep your shield up. You got to like take your time and be patient. The action is challenging. Oh, yeah. Game? The action. It's the action. That's almost entirely what's challenging. Okay. About it. Yeah. Every enemy is like very smart. They'll kill you in one hit. It's crazy stuff. Like you think you're good and you're flowing and then you just make one mistake and you're dead. Wow. You know, and it's not difficult like that. Zelda isn't difficult like that. Right. And to the point of finding all of the inventory stuff 
that's the stuff that technically makes the game easier. I mean, finding all the heart pieces, finding the optional weapons. Like I said, I would say, I don't know if this is exactly accurate, Dagan, but I would say probably a third of the weapons and items, like inventory items in the game, you don't have to find at all. So there's something about that that's really interesting, but I like how there's sometimes story associated or plot or character associated with what you're finding, what you're doing. Like when you need to talk to the witch and get the magic, you know, powder and you need to talk to Zora to get the flippers and you need to do all these kinds of things. It's really cool. And by the way, these are the introductions, by the way, with Zora and others to a race of characters that kind of transcend Zelda since then, which I think is really great. So is it obtuse? Yeah, I think it's obtuse. I would say that the original Zelda is 25 times more obtuse. Agreed. You know, you have to burn this bush on this screen with this candle. <laughs> like, crazy. how do you know that? It's I don't know how you know that. Craziness. It's not like that. It's certainly not. Like right. That. It's not. And, you know, like we said, a lot of it is we already experienced with the formula. And even though the formula had evolved, do you think inherently that modern games in general, not putting them all into one box, but you think they're too spoon feedy in general today? As compared to the... Generally speaking, yes, okay. definitely. Now, there are games that are really hard. Like, I've been playing Hollow Knight, I showed you, which is a Metroidvania. That game yeah, is incredibly that hard. That game looks so I good. mean, that game's really hard. Like, there's no doubt about it. It's hard. It's hard tactically. It's hard technically. It's hard in gameplay. You don't really know what you're supposed to do. It doesn't really tell you anything. It's very vague. And there's a place for that. But I think most games... I think most people would agree that most games hold your hand and they give you a tutorial... You know, think about first-person shooters as they began, for instance, and then think about them now. Now, this isn't universally true, but with id first-person shooters like Doom and Wolfenstein 3D, you had health. You had armor and health, and when you lost your health, you died. Now, what's the kind of standard in shooters? You, you know, get shot, your screen starts to turn red, you start to kind of black out, you just go hide, you come back to health, and then you run out again. And that allows you to incrementally go forward, especially if there's not monster closets or anything like that where enemies are respawning constantly, you can very meticulously work your way through a game. And I think that's fun and I think there's something to that, but it's not hard. That's why the Wolfenstein games for machine games are so refreshing because they bring back health and they're fucking impossible. (laughs) You know, and as much as I like to lament the trophy list on the new Wolfenstein game that came out last year, the fact of the matter is beating the game on the hardest difficulty level without dying. And if you die, it just resets your save. So you can't do anything about it. You just you just die. Wow. That's some baller ass shit. (laughs) <laughs> and I watched a person on YouTube do it because I'm like, I can't even believe this can be done. And it can be. You have to be so patient, you know, yeah. and this isn't quite like that, but it's more like that, where I feel like people are taking for granted, like that you have this not opportunity, but right almost to beat a game. And this is from an era where you don't have the right to do shit. Yeah. You know, and I, and I yeah. like that. You have you a right know? to learn it. But I don't think that this game is technically hard. I don't think any of the boss fights are exceptionally hard. I no. don't think that, like, the dungeons are exceptionally hard. It is hard in the dark world finding your way sometimes. But that's about it. Yeah, you know? I would agree with that. Just hard enough to be satisfying. A boss fight's just hard enough to where you might not get it on the first try, but you might, you're going to get it on the second try. Which, you know, kind of spurns you along. You're not going to get it. One positive thing about that is you're not going to give up in frustration. You know, you're going to keep going. There's a tether here that pulls you through that I think a lot of Zelda games share, but I think that they share them for different reasons. Like, I really just enjoy maxing out Link's heart containers. I love Majora's Mask so much because it's all done with the backdrop of 72 hours. Like, this imminence, you don't have time to fuck around. You don't have time to get through things. I loved in that game how you would get halfway through a dungeon and you're like, I can't, I don't have time to beat it. You have to leave and start it again. You know, you like reset the clock. I love that kind of stuff. So there's different kinds of difficulty. And I think that, Certainly out of the three Zelda games up to that point, A Link to the Past is by far the easiest. Patrick Woolley wrote into us and said, I love this game, but Link's sprite was the se- with the seemingly pink hair always bothered me. Mm, let's talk about this. I'm not crazy about the Link design from here. I actually am quite fond of the original Zelda's Link design. Okay. And kind of him holding the Triforce up or whatever. Like there's something really 
great about that. And obviously, the Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask Link is great. I think my least favorite is probably Twilight Princess. But which Link do you enjoy? And did you have a problem with the design of Link in this particular game? No. Some people did. Uh, you know what? It never bothered me. And I know I read about that a lot and I hear about that a lot. Guys talk about it on YouTube when they talk about the game and stuff like that. But I think you guys have to step back and look at this in historical context. Back, you know, in 1991, 92, this is only the third game. Link and Zelda were relatively new things. Now, of course, in 2018, there's a huge body of work by Nintendo and so many games, Zelda games, and so many iterations of Link. But back then, I feel like it was still within that sort of realm of acceptability to experiment with the character a little bit. Now, that just might be the character designer in me talking, but I really do feel like that was fair game. I feel like the statute of limitations hadn't expired on that yet. You know, it had only been... Uh, you know, so many years of Link, and why not try him this way? And why not try the the Link with the pink hair? And I think the pink hair was also a very specific design decision to make the character pop in this world as well. Because nothing in this, you know, foresty, sort of medieval-esque, for a lack of a better term, world was going to be pink. So having his hair pink is a way to make that sprite pop, you know, and a way to make that character stand out. And I think you do have to look at it. I think it does bother a lot of people. And there's, you know, there's a lot of us that are like Link purists and we love Link and we want to see him. You know, it bothers us to see. Sometimes it does bother you to see, you know, a character, you know, you've taken, it feels like somebody's taken too many liberties with your, with your guy, you know. But I think that that's always my take on that was that that was fair game back then. And my favorite Link, Kyle, I would say the illustrations from... I don't know if you remember the instruction booklet and stuff like that. There's a really classic illustration of Link. I don't. He's, it's like Teenage Link, and it's a hand-drawn illustration, and he's walking. It's a forward view of him walking with the castle in the background. I think he has his shield and his sword, and he's he has his shield down, and he has his, he's carrying his sword. A lot of people say that's like the coolest Link. That, for me, is like the perfect picture of Link. I love the Teenage Link when it's illustrated in that certain way, which I believe is from the... Zelda 2 instruction booklet, but I also have to say quick shout out to Zelda instruction booklet art for the first, second, and third games. Super inspirational to me. I, w- I remember sitting there and looking at the instruction matters and pouring through them and just looking at the illustrations and, you know, feeling like that was such a part of what was immersing you in the world. It almost seemed like, I know the graphics in the game don't look this good, but this is what it's supposed to be representing. And wow, it, that's what really sucked me in. But for Link to the Past, Link, that didn't bother, the pink hair doesn't bother me. And I do love the instruction manual art as well. Like you said, and like you alluded to, that was all we really had to rely upon to know what it was supposed to be. And I remember being exceptionally obsessed with like the Castlevania instruction manuals and looking at the bosses and stuff like that and being like, oh, this is what they're trying to portray. But we did that with Zelda too, and it was a lot of fun. Carlos Streif wrote into us and said, people often compare A Link to the Past with Ocarina of Time and talk about how the former is a foundation for the latter. Do you guys agree with that? And which game strikes you as more as better or more special? So what he's asking is, do we look at Ocarina of Time as being foundationally built on Link to the Past? And either way, which one do we think is the better game? And to be fair, Ocarina of Time is widely considered to be the best Zelda game ever, maybe until Breath of the Wild. 
I don't agree with that. I never agreed with that. But I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you think that there's shared genetics between these games? And which one do you prefer? Yeah, I mean, it's said that there's shared genetics between these games. Nintendo has said that a lot of the stuff that didn't make it into this game was directly poured into that game, right? Or some of their ideas and some of their concepts that they couldn't get into this game. I, my heart is with, and this could speak to my age, the era of time where I was a really rabid gamer. But for me, A Link to the Past is not only my favorite Zelda game, but it's one of my favorite games, as I've said, you know, as I said earlier in the show. But I do know that Ocarina arena of time is that's again that's some people's favorite game not only some people's favorite zelda game so i respect that i have to revisit that game i don't remember it that well to be honest with you and that's probably on the very top of my list just for people's resonance with that game and how highly they speak of it and wanting to revisit it and that's one of the only games that i remember playing with my best friend one of the only nintendo games i remember playing with some of my best friends like pj who really didn't like nintendo so that has a specific sheen for me, that game. And some of my, you know, later on, some of my roommates in college, too, experienced in that game. But I don't remember it that well. That could speak to being just an exhausted animation student. So that's something I'm going to revisit. But for me, Link to the Past, that's my heart. I don't see a lot of the comparisons, whether or not they say they're there or not. And I believe them. I just don't see the games as the same. I see Ocarina of Time as being a very unique beast that influenced many of the games that came after it. And I think that that's obvious. And I think that it was such a masterclass when it came out in 1998 on N64. I was so smitten with it. And it's a really fun and great game and reminds me a great deal of my best friend growing up, Mike Pope, and playing it with him. But, you know, foundationally or otherwise, I do think Link to the Past is a better game. I think Link to the Past is a superior game. I think Ocarina of Time is a really great 3D effort and something new, just like Mario 64 and later on Majora's Mask and a lot of games on that console. Sure. It's them trying something new and something different. And so I respect and appreciate that. But I don't have the love for it and never have had the love for it that other people share. Is it typically that uh, that younger generation that came up with the N64? Like if you were, you know, if you were, well, you I was you 12 when the N64 came out. So that seems like it would be in the right wheelhouse. But think about somebody a little younger, like eight year olds, anywhere from six to eight year olds. That's their first. That always seems to be the people that love N64 the most. And I'm not disparaging N64. It has its place. But people of my generation and even of your generation, it's just it's a preference. I think, you know, and that you know, you have to consider all the nostalgia points and everything like that. So, you know, there's a place for all that. But I'm gonna go back. I'll let you guys know how I feel about that game. Who, who knows? Maybe we'll even do a show about some other Zelda games. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Ocarina of Time is a game we should absolutely do a show on in the future. Shane Hendrickson wrote into us and said, I wanted a true follow-up to this game for years, and when we finally got one in A Link Between Worlds, I was disappointed. It wasn't a bad game at all, but also wasn't quite what I was hoping for. What about you? Did you end up playing A Link Between Worlds, which came out 2013 on 3DS? Never played. I played it that Christmas at Dad's house. I just basically laid on his couch for a few days and played through it, and I didn't like it. I just Yeah, I just felt like it was some bastardized version of this game that I really loved. It took place in very familiar environs in the same world. And you'd think that that would be fun, but I didn't find it fun at all. I almost found it like blasphemous. Mm. I'm like, what is this? This <laughs> this isn't what I want. I, what was cool about it, I will say this. What was cool about it is I know A Link to the Past so well that I knew my way around that world. Like, you know, like it wasn't a problem. And that's cool. Like that level of familiarity and, that, and the familiarity that's bred by playing a game so many times was embedded in this separate game that came out, what, you know, 18 years later, you know, 19 yeah. years later, which is cool. But I don't like when these standalone games get sequels that they're supposed to be kind of apart. You're supposed to be getting a different link in most games. It's supposed to be a conduit in sometimes different places. Sometimes it's Hyrule. Sometimes it's like Majora's Mask. It's in Termina. All those kinds of things. But for me, I just didn't want this game and I didn't quite appreciate it. And it had that weird mechanic about going between worlds, about like making yourself flat and going on walls and stuff. 
sometimes Zelda just goes so far. We went on a different tirade a few episodes ago where I was talking about Minish Cap, where I'm like, you know, the idea of making yourself small is just not good enough, and I don't really need gimmicks. I just want good gameplay, fun dungeons to solve without the gimmick and stuff like that. You don't need gimmicks. If you rely on them, then then it's safe to say that you do need them, and I, don't, I just don't feel like Nintendo needed that. So I know I appreciate that that game did really well. It sold really well. You know, in the original, you know, Link to the Past sold really well, too. It sold 4 million copies on SNES, which is not an insignificant sum of games sold on that console. I mean, 4 million is like nothing now for a game. You know, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a smash hit game at 4 million. Right. And that's not a given at that price. But, you know, for back then, that's cool. So I really was excited that other people were excited about A Link Between Worlds, but I just didn't care. You know, I just wasn't into it and I never beat it. I just never, never got through the whole thing. The final question we have before we kind of, you know, get into what we want to wrap up with is. Sean Mason wrote it and said, A Link to the Past is one of my favorite games of all time. I remember the first time I booted it up and being amazed by the beautiful sprite work. My question for you guys is twofold. Do you think Nintendo would ever remake the game into 3D? And would you want Nintendo to do so? What do you think about that? I don't think this game would work in 3D. For everything that it is, even think about the 90 degree sword slash and the spin attack and the fact that sort of that top downish three quarter perspective and how that affects the gameplay and how that affects fighting the enemies and stuff like that. How can that work in 3D? It would be something different in 3D. You know, what can you do? You could make something atmospheric. You could make Link with pink hair. For me, you know, maybe that's being a little too close minded or not thinking about it thoughtfully enough. But for me, my first instinct is to say you can't remake this game in 3D. It wouldn't work. I don't know that it would work or not work. I just want to get away from this idea that things need to be remade. Why can't A Link to the Past just be left alone? And I keep asking myself that about a lot of games. Like Final Fantasy VII is the most recent game that we've been asking ourselves about with Square Enix's insistence on making remaking it episodically yeah. <laughs> in like Unreal Engine or whatever they're doing. And it's like, why can't you just leave things alone? And if you're going to remake it, then understand what people mean by that. They want you to just make it prettier the way that it looked to begin with, the way it played to begin with, and turn-based action and all that. So... It's not that I don't think that it could work, because maybe it could work. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and tell Miyamoto and Nintendo that they can't make something work. I mean, they make a lot of things work, but... Of course. I just want them to think, and I think they understand, which is, you know, why I think that they never made a true remake and kind of just iterated on it and then made a sequel instead of a remake in A Link Between Worlds, that you got to be careful with what you ask for, and some things are just left sacred. Like, no matter what you do to that game, it's not going to be better. So what's the point of doing anything to it. It's already a 10. It's already pretty much perfect. Anything you do to it is going to make it worse. Like you can't possibly really improve on it. No, absolutely not. I mean, maybe you could take a good idea from a game. Maybe you could take a good idea from a game that didn't hit the way you wanted to hit or didn't hit the way Nintendo wanted it to hit the first time around. So whether you make a light world, dark world thing, and or maybe it's something where you use that sort of thing that they were trying to do in Minish Cap where it's like size shifting and shape shifting or whatever it is. But you know, take an idea, but yeah, rather than remaking it, like Square with Final Fantasy, like what? why not just make Final Fantasy 16? I don't know. Maybe they are making Final Fantasy 16. I don't know. I'm sure. But, you know, just make Final Fantasy 16. You know, bring out the next thing. Colin and I end up talking, we're, we're both purists in our own way and both pretty traditional when it comes to this kind of stuff, but we're both usually of the mind. I know it comes up oftentimes on the show, but it's really genuinely how we feel is that, you know, as a purist, you want to see them go out and try to make the next thing. Be creative. Tell a new story with new characters. You know, do something original and fresh. And maybe you'll strike on the next Link to the Past. You know, we can use a new... Everybody can use a new Link to the Past. But make something, you know, something that resonates that way and that we it becomes so beloved over time. We always want that, right? So for me, that's what I always want. 
you know, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard to, you know, creativity doesn't always come easy and inventing something that is successful and that goes over with people is always sort of a tricky task. But for me, that's, that's always going to be the, you know, at least if you failed, at least you tried. Right. I think we could use another top down sprite based pixel based Zelda game. I agree. I think that they'd try to do something like that with 3DS iteration of A Link Between Worlds. But again, it's a direct sequel and in a world that already exists. And I just didn't feel like it felt right. But if the question is, do you want another game like A Link to the, a Link to the Past? Then the answer is yes. I mean, that's vehemently yes. I want another game like the original Zelda and like A Link to the Past much more than I want a game like, you know, Skyward Sword or much more than I want a game like Twilight Princess and more, more than I want a game like Breath of the Wild. I mean, I would take an old Zelda game over one of those any day of the week. What do you think of this, Kyle? Zelda, A Link to the Future. Zelda, top-down perspective, 16-bit sprite graphics. It's very similar to Link to the Past, but Link in modern-day New York City. What do you think of this? I mean, we kind of already got that with Mario Odyssey and and that weird shit. Oh, shit. Wasn't that weird? Yeah, I'm not a big... I'm With, not a like, big... actual humans in the Mario world? I don't know. It was very weird. That game, gameplay super fun. We're not going to get into this today, but gameplay super fun left me cold. Yeah, For I, some I, reason. I didn't like it that much. I just was like, this is fine. My son loved it. Now, this, this could be a complete generational thing. You know, my son's eight. He was six, seven when he was playing that. I'm getting real jaded with Nintendo, like, more than usual, I think. Now, before we get into the conversation that you wanted to kind of have at the end, which was about Breath of the Wild, which, of course, is the newest Zelda game that came out in 2017, March 2017, as a finally a Switch launch game and also came out on Wii U in limited numbers. I just wanted people to know a few things here. You can play this game, obviously, in the Super Nintendo original if you have access to that. It's also, as we've mentioned many times via the listener questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas that it's available on the Super Nintendo Classic, so you can play it there. It's available on various virtual consoles. It first came the Wii Virtual Console in 2006. It's on Game Boy Advance in the form of the Four Swords, which came out in 2002. You know, there's a lot of ways for you to experience it. And if you're listening to this podcast but haven't yet experienced The Link to the Past, those are the ways in which you can do it. You could also use an emulator, and you're not going to have me judging you for that. The game is very old. So you said the really Super Nintendo Classic, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, maybe emulating it is the quickest way to play it, and you're not going to find me getting mad about you emulating Super Nintendo games. So <laughs> so go ahead and do that as well. But there are a lot of ways you can legally purchase it. And if you have the ability to legally purchase it and want to play it, you should, of course, do that as well. It's also worth noting that I do have a funny story that I want to kind of close out with that I remember a couple of years after I got it, I was home for the summer from New England and I was playing it. And I used to have this really bad habit of leaving my Super Nintendo on for like all day. I would be playing and then I'd just go out and play and I'd come back to my Super Nintendo to continue what I was doing. And I left A Link to the Past on my Super Nintendo one morning as I was playing it and I went to play with my friends and I came back to find that my or our dad's girlfriend's shitty son reset my super nintendo oh, no. and because he wanted to play mario world or something and I, I went absolutely ballistic on this kid and my i remember dad being so mad at me for like getting all upset oh that my god this kid went into my room played my super nintendo and all this shit and like you know i lost my save it's one of those of <gasps> like yeah. breath t- breath taken away Meanwhile, i probably had beaten it 25 i was gonna say how much did you lose not much i for some reason i don't think i was really saving or i don't know what i was doing i don't know what the big deal was it wasn't like the <laughs> nes where if you didn't hold the reset button and you would lose your save on the battery, which was like a really big thing that happened on the NES. Yeah. For people that don't know, if you had a battery save on an NES game and didn't hold the reset button in when you shut the game off, then there was a decent chance you were going to lose the save completely. It really did happen. Yeah. Which it wasn't it wasn't anecdotal. This was a real thing. It was really Super strange. Nintendo didn't have that weird technical limitation, but I did want to share that 
because I, I just have such a memory of the raw summertime anger <laughs> in like 1993 or 1994 oh that I had for that God. stupid piece of shit kid. Sons of I will bitch. not share his name here today. Now, Dagan, you wanted to finish up before we yeah, get into uh, please. You're the Worst, which is the segment that we usually are finishing up. We have a little time, no? Oh, we have all the time in the world. You know what? I did want to ask one more thing, Colin. This is a very, oh, okay. not necessarily pertaining to Zelda, but kind of. And this is something that used to bother me a lot as a young gamer. You know what, Kyle? You and I have probably talked about this subject before, but just to ask you again and sort of get the listeners' takes on stuff. It always bothered me that this game, that Zelda Link to the Past, wasn't called Zelda 3. Now, I know what Nintendo was doing, and you know Sega did the same thing with things, that they were sort of start, essentially starting over with this new console rather than sort of forming a continuity with Mario 1, 2, and 3. I think they were sort of setting it apart. I don't know if it was trying to make it look older or trying to make it look that was part of what in the marketing and the branding of what, you know, the attempt to make it look something like something fresh and exciting. But it always, always bothered me that this game wasn't called Zelda 3 and that Super Mario World wasn't called Super Mario Brothers 4. And how did you feel about that? Did you ever think about that? Did it bother you? I don't know that it bothered me, but I do recall, and I think I've read that it was being referred to as Zelda 3 for a while, like in publication. It is a little disappointing because there are series that have gone on for so long. Like Final Fantasy is a great example of 15 of the core games, plus many more. I mean, 13 has two sequels, for instance, where there's something about that. There's something about the spoken legacy of it. And I wonder, are we going to get to a point with Final Fantasy where Final Fantasy 30 comes out and it's like, no one even knows the fuck Final Fantasy one is anymore. You know, I like that continuity. I understand from a marketing standpoint, it's probably not the smartest thing to name it three if you want to kind of expose people to it again. Yeah, but, and be inclusive and all that kind of stuff. You know, Mario, I don't think I ever really had a problem with because it's different. But it is kind of like a sequel to Super Mario Brothers 3, which makes you wonder if Mario Brothers 3 should have had a different name and then Super Mario World should have been that sequel, you know, because they're like mm. these mm. map-based, non-linear you know, side scrollers. I like that. Yeah. Unlike, you know, the original Mario and Mario 2, which were mm. much more li- or completely linear. Of course. Yeah. I don't want to say linear. You can jump around them, but you understand what I'm saying. Jump around. Yeah, there you go. Jump, jump up, jump up, and get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so do, you have, do you have anything else that you want to share before we get into what you wanted to finish with, which was kind of because I'm curious about what you have to say and what you kind of want to inquire about with Breath of the Wild. With Breath of the Wild? Well, well, I'll say this first of all. Thank you to all the listeners. Colin always is very good about thanking you guys. I want I want to send you a special thank you for writing in and taking the time to listen and taking the time to engage with us. And I also have to say, you guys, not to give you guys an inflated head, you guys already have super big heads. I don't need to make you any more cocky. But you guys are very good with reading our minds as far as bringing up the things I want to talk about. You brought up pink-haired Link. You, you're really getting kind of intuitive with this kind of stuff, and I appreciate it. We share a telepathic link. Stop with the stepping on my lines is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell stop, you? Stop taking the wind out of Let me do sales. my job. I know. Let him do. Let him live. No, you guys are you guys are really doing a wonderful job with that. You're actually bringing up so many, not just with this episode, but a lot of episodes this wave. And I would say even in the last wave or two, you guys are bringing up a lot of stuff that I wanted to talk about, like talking points that I have bullet pointed here in my notes on my laptop in front of me. And I think we're on the same wavelength, guys. And I, I just want to thank you. For no, that. that's great. I think you're absolutely right, Dig. And, you know, what's cool about it is that I try to compile these questions and I try to read everyone's questions, which we've done a pretty good job of. And I just took the extra time this time around to just put them in order and make annotations with them so that we could integrate them better. So they were non sequitur So they weren't non sequitur, but rather were contributive to the, you know, the conversation at hand. So I think they were very good at that. 
they were very organized in getting their thoughts out. They followed the instructions that I laid out about identifying what they're talking about. And stuff. Absolutely. So we really do appreciate you guys because so much work in the pre-production part of goes into knockback much more than the other shows. And so you guys have made it so easy by your incredible level of contribution and, and which interaction, is so cool. which is yeah. very, it's you guys do a good job. It's excellent. It's excellent. So what do you want to say about Breath of the Wild? So how, do you, Wild. how And do you want me to tell you how wrong you are about Breath of the Wild as well? Yeah, I want to. I really want to know your thoughts on this game because I really feel a certain way about it. Now, I have to say, a lot of my game time spent with this game is sitting with my son as he plays it. I haven't played. He he's been playing it for hours and hours over the past months, and I've probably played. You know, of that total playtime where that's on the screen and we're in front of it, I would say I've only played probably a quarter of the time. So a lot of it's spent time is spent watching him, and he's pretty. You know, Colin and I talk about it sometimes. My son Graydon, he's a pretty good gamer. He's, yeah, he's pretty, pretty sophisticated. He's pretty sophisticated kid, and he's good at the game, and he loves it. He really enjoys it. And this is the game that got him into Zelda. He's seen the previous. You know, he's seen Zelda one, two, three. He's seen Skyward Sword. He's seen a lot bunch of things. But this is the game that got him into Zelda, and. He loves it. But for me, there's something leaving me really cold about it. Now, I don't know if it's the cel-shaded graphics. I don't know if it's that it's not a particularly colorful game and the fact of it's very it's grounded in a world that's not particularly colorful. Now, it's kind of a weird thing to say because there's a really strong design aesthetic in this game with the guardians and the way the art looks and sort of that there's a really telltale sophisticated art direction in the game that i think is really brilliant there's a lot of really strong visual cues in the game but for there's something leaving me cold about it and what i realized was that there's not it doesn't seem like the world is very populated and for some reason we talked about this a little earlier and it sort of speaks to my point of I think that really bothers me in a 3D game, in a 3D world, that you could just be walking and walking for hours. And that might be a weird thing to say. There's a fair amount of enemies in the game that you sort of run into, and there's animals and wildlife everywhere and stuff like that. It just might be the lack of the people in the game. It might be the lack of color. But what's your impression of the game, Kyle? And I also haven't beaten it. You know, like I said, I haven't played it that much. A lot of it's just been observing the game. Yeah, I've talked a great deal about this, and I know that it bothers some people, but I mean, for people that are unfamiliar, I guess I'll kind of lay it out. Because there's a few things about it that I think are important to note. I think that the game is very finely made, and I'm always very impressed by Nintendo's insistence on shipping games that work. And I was really surprised when I began playing it and it started downloading a patch. I was like, that's so weird because I doubt it needs it. And... I also have never downloaded a patch on a Nintendo game in my life. Yeah. So this is you know a unique thing. Well, I've been downloading patches on PlayStation for 10 years. So so I like that there's a, a te- there's an attention to detail. They got it right from that regard. It works. You know, I respect that. And I want to tip my cap to them for that because I think it's worthwhile. I think that Breath of the Wild doesn't understand what Zelda is. I think that people that like it don't like it because it's a Zelda game. Because it's not a Zelda game. There's nothing about it that's a Zelda game. And... That's fine if they want to make an open world game, put Link in it, make it as that's what the direction they want to go put Zelda in. But that's never what Zelda was before. And it's heavily informed by Western role playing games from Bethesda and from Bioware and from other big companies. And they're just a little late to the game in that regard. And I'm going to say this, and I think this is the most controversial thing that I feel about it. If this game was on PlayStation or Xbox, it would have an eight on Metacritic instead of a 97. And no one would be talking about it anymore. Yeah. And I stand by that. I completely stand by that. There are better open world games. There are better role playing games. There are better action games. They've all come out, you know, 
some of them come out in the last year, some of them last come you know come out in the last five years. And I, that's the big thing is that I think Nintendo just gets excused for everything it does. At it's all getting times. Zelda points. It's getting Nintendo and Zelda points. It's the same thing with Mario Odyssey. Yeah, yeah Mario yeah. Odyssey is in no way, shape, or form better than Mario Sunshine or Mario Galaxy. Not even close. I'm sorry. I love Mario Galaxy. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing else to say about it. What's so revolutionary about it? You know, that's the thing that's starting to bother me now with how much you know mainstream games media and journalists just give this shit a pass over and over again without being critical to it. If Mario Odyssey wasn't a Mario game and it was some other mascot and it was on PlayStation, it would have got a fucking seven and a half on Metacritic. Yeah. Sold half a million copies and, yeah, been, yeah. and been lost to history forever. Straight up. You know? And so that's the kind of thing that I think, I think those are facts. I think that that's true. There's no way that Breath of the Wild is a 97. You know? And... The, the thing that bothers me about it the most and the thing that scares me the most about it is that I have a real authentic and long lasting decades long love of Zelda and you're never going to get another Zelda game again now. I don't mean that you're not going to get another Legend of Zelda game in the title. I think you're going to get a bunch of open world games now. You can't possibly go back to the Zelda formula now that you've made this game, yeah. you know, and yeah. that's the thing that really, really scares me because they had the boldness to make an open world game and to learn from Western development. And I appreciate that. And we've been so hard on Japanese development. And I want to do a video about this at some point because, you know, six, seven years ago, people were shitting on Japanese game developers for a very good reason, including other Japanese game developers like Kamiya and, you know, Iga and Inafune and those guys. They were all very critical of what was going on. And they've definitely turned the ship over there. There's a lot of great stuff coming out of Japan now. Lots of really rock solid games from really rock solid studios that are very much on par with Western development. Yeah. But my problem is that there's still this Nintendo outlier that's just treated differently than everyone else. And there's nothing in Zelda that's revolution and the breath of the wild that's revolutionary. There's nothing in that game that other games can't do better and don't do better. The one thing that I will say that I really, really like, and I've said this in the past is that in breath of the wild, if you think you can do it, you probably can. Yeah. And I think that that's cool. Yeah. And that's a high level of design and a high level of QA apart from that to make sure the game's not broken. If Absolutely. you think about Fallout 4, for instance, or a Bethesda game, that Bethesda games are notoriously broken. Not Bethesda published games, but Bethesda game studios developed games. So think Fallout 3, Fallout 4, The Elder Scrolls, etc. Those games are broken. And there's that famous story, although it's a Bethesda published game, not a Bethesda developed game, but there's a story about New Vegas that I've always told about how those games break in such weird ways that it's impossible to anticipate how they're going to break. So with that level of detail and design where you can climb trees, you can climb mountains, you can, you know, I remember, I know it's so simple, but I remember seeing an apple tree like far away and I couldn't reach the apples. And I'm like, can I shoot the apples down? Shoot it down. You know, and I did. And then I almost never asked myself a question, did it? And then I wasn't able to do it. Yeah, in the game. yeah, yeah. That's fucking cool as hell. That's I'm not going to I'm not going to take that away from them. A lot of nuance. It's nuance. And it's just an attention to quality assurance because like they have to try to break it and the game won't break and I, it won't it won't bend. And yeah. I think that that's cool. That's hard to do. Very few people are making games of that quality. All right. So I'm not taking that away from them. But when you t look at what the game is, it's not Zelda. It's just not Zelda. There's nothing that. about it that's Zelda. Nothing. You know, m why is my equipment constantly breaking? That's not fun. Yeah, why that's... am I always cooking? That's not fun. Yeah, the crafting thing. The equipment thing really gets me where I'm like, this isn't fun. And you don't want to use weapons. You don't want to, like, use your good shit because you're afraid you're going to break it and stuff. I'm like, what? How is this Zelda? Why are there a million dungeons? Yeah, so many. I, I want, like, maybe eight. You know, eight big, well-designed dungeons. And I know that people, some people really swear up and down that's the best game ever made. And I didn't beat it either. I played it for 20, 25 hours. And I really tried to give it a shot. And I'm like, you know what? 
the end of the day, I think the way I would describe it, Dagan, it's boring. It's just boring. I have no idea yeah. what the fuck's even going on. In it. Something... Or why, why am I even doing anything in it? Yeah, I hear you on that. So it... that's my takeaway. I don't want to be so negative about it, but no, no, I want. I really wanted to hear that. You know, we'll talk about it more in the future, and I, I want to play it more. But it, you know, it's odd to me. It strikes me. I could see Nintendo wanting a piece of that open world pie and wanting a piece of that very popular gameplay genre but why do it with zelda why can't they do it with something else make a new ip i mean think make about a new ip think about what they've done with xenoblade and how they've had you know studio a studio making xenoblade as a role-playing game kind of an open world non-linear role-playing it's not really open world it's the traditional japanese role-playing game i think you guys know what i'm saying though they they made a game they made a genre it's like saying like i want turn-based strategy and i'm gonna wedge it in the pikmin yeah, it's like, no, you made you make Fire Emblem games. That's what you do. And now you have, you know, an open world series. But it's like you already Zelda's not that's not what Zelda is. It's absolutely true. I, I You know, it's a shame to see somebody a uh, place like Nintendo who's so known for their creativity and all the brilliant things that they've done. You know, in order to make a new Zelda game, just find that, you know, find that hook to make it, you know, stay Zelda, but something fresh and original and build it around that. But something that works in that world and works with that works within that legacy. You know, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I agree with that 100%. It's not to say that there aren't satisfying things in the game. It's not to say that it's not clever or cute because it is. And it's not to say that it's not beautiful because it is, but it's very pretty. I'm climbing and it's raining, so I can't climb. I'm cooking and I don't know what the fuck I'm cooking. So I just waste my items. I have a great sword and I use it five times and it's broken. It's broken. I have metal things equipped. So I'm going to get struck by lightning. Right. It's like, what? (laughs) I don't quite get how it's a Zelda game and. I know that some people are like, well, things have to change and they adapt. And I'm like, no, I disagree. And this is exactly what I was saying about Mega Man 11. Mega Man 11's double gear system means that it's not a Mega Man game. Yeah, it's something else. You know, and I appreciate if you want to make a different game, make a different game. And yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's like, (laughs) I love that they finally made an open world role playing game. I hate that it's a Zelda game. Yeah, I agree. I guess that's what I'm saying, because. I would murder for a real Zelda game again, like a real Zelda game like we got with Ocarina of Time, like we got with Majora's Mask, like, you know, like people I don't like them because of the way you control them. But even with Phantom Tracks and all that kind of stuff, it's like these are Zelda games and that means something. And I don't know that you have the agency to just change what it means forever. And I'm telling you, how can they go back? It would be weird to go back. It would be really weird to go. And that was what hurt me so bad when I saw it, when I played it, when I marinated on it. I'm like, you know what? The saddest thing about this is they just can't go back because the second they try to make another Ocarina of Time, people are going to be like, what is this shit? It's only 15 hours long. Can't do anything. Can't go anywhere. You can't walk around. It's only only a few kilometers, you know, wide and you only have, you know, eight dungeons. What the fuck is this shit? That's exactly what's going to happen. And that's But you can see for my son, that is Zelda. So his generation, that's what, that's what it is now. I guess. Because that's his first real Zelda game that he really played. In that case, the, the series is basically dead to me. Yeah, it's gonna. It's it looks like it's it's changed. And I just think that Nintendo needs a little bit of a shot in the arm in terms of flexing its IP and and trying to make things into what they are. Like they try when they brought Kid Icarus back, they tried to bring Kid Icarus back, but it wasn't Kid Icarus. No, it was different. You know, like I just don't get it. I yeah. don't get what they're doing. You know, they tried to bring Pilot Wings back, but it wasn't Pilot Wings. Just make new games. Yeah. What's so scary about that? Yeah, absolutely. It almost Your competitors like are, only ma- are always making new they're shit. They're always making new stuff, and they're not beholden. They don't feel like they're beholden to the same things that Nintendo's beholden to. In, in effect, Nintendo's really hampering itself. I almost feel like they should exist in a bubble and not look at what other people are doing. I think they're the best when they're being inventive and they're just doing their own thing and coming from the heart. I don't think they should look at the video game, you know, sort of 
horizon and sort of the video what's going on in games right now with you know Fortnite, the Fortnites and the open worlds and trying to get a piece of the certain pies i think they should just exist within their own if if there was a way for them to just operate inside their own very sheltered u- bubble and their own very sheltered universe and make games within that sphere i think that that's how they would be most successful you know definitely i do wonder like what they looked at i'm sure it's out there i haven't re- researched too deeply I, I wonder what the influences are if they would even admit what they looked at to make breath of the wild yeah, i wonder and like what they pulled out to be like you know one of the fun things about open world games is, is when your equipment breaks every five seconds <laughs> that's the one thing we think we that people are really going to enjoy about our open world you got game. this bitch and sword but don't use it you know what one of the things that people really love about open world games is cooking every five seconds they fucking loved that shit so that's what we're going to do in our game you know what we especially love is when you're climbing things and it starts raining and to no fault of your own you just have to sit around for 25 minutes and slip. wait for the weather to pass you gotta slip but, you know that's that's the stuff people love oh, guys i don't know and my son loves the crafting thing, too. He loves gathering ingredients. He has the patience for it and trying to craft different things. Oh, Daddy, check out. I made this thing with these three things. He'll do it all day long. So maybe we're just getting old. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Or maybe these kids are dumb. I don't know. There's also no doubt about that. <laughs> Looking forward to that Metroid uh, Battle Royale game that will be inevitably coming to Switch soon. And we'll have a 107 on Metacritic. <laughs> the, the highest ever Metacritic score because Nintendo made it. <laughs> All right, Dave, we are finishing every episode yes. of this wave of knockback with a new segment that you're calling You're the Worst. You're the Worst. Which is where we identify and we ask each other what is the worst of something. Yeah. And we just talked about what the worst Zelda game is. Now let's talk about what the worst of what? What should we talk about? I'm going to ask you, Kyle, today, what is the worst flavored potato chip? Potato oh, chip. Sour cream and onion. That's the worst. It's got to be the worst. You don't like it. Out of the mainstream ones. You're a barbecue guy. I like barbecue. I like jalapeno. You know, I like classic, you know, salt. Plain, just and plain just, salt. And you taste a little bit of the oil, the peanut oil, or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Okay. How about you? What do you think about Sour what's the worst? Sour cream is the worst. The worst for me. I'm a, I'm a lover of potato. Oh, salt and vinegar. I don't like salt and vinegar at all. Yeah, I could not do with it. I could do without no. that, too. I would. I. That's right below sour cream and onion for me. Yeah. Okay. Sour all cream right. is an abomination. Just an absolute abomination. You don't like sour cream, period. Just strike it from this world. <laughs> You know. Do you eat a baked potato or no? I will, but I'd put butter, butter. and chives on it or salt, pepper or something like that. I don't want sour cream on Cheese. That. Cheese, sure. Cheese goes on anything. Broccoli? Sure, you could do that. Okay. I mean, you couldn't put all of the same ingredients on broccoli. Bacon bits. I haven't had bacon bits in a long time. I like bacon bits. Okay. I remember when we used to get bacon bits when we were younger that it was like a treat that I would buy as bacon bits. And every once in a while, I'll make my own bacon bits with real bacon. Ooh, that's good. That's nice. You have to like almost burn it. It's like a very fine line, you know, because I actually like, you know, you know that with bacon when you cook it and the one half of it is like the fatty half and it's like it bubbles up and the, it's like that white bubble. I, that's like my favorite part. of the Oh, bacon. me too. I'm with you on that yeah. all the way. Like, I don't like the, you know, like Allie, our sister always gets well done bacon and I'm like, that's really wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. Crispy or whatever. It's just totally wrong. Yeah, you got to have a fatty. And that's why you'll never be on the show, Allie, because you like well done bacon. I'm You're sorry. To, I'm sorry to report that. Worst sister. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I think that's a great that's a great question. And, you know, shout out to black pepper potato chips. Not exactly common. Only some brands do it. But I love black pepper. Very good flavor. Potato chips. Me, too. Yeah, I like that, too. Now, let me riddle you this for you. OK. Except for Earth. So you only have seven options. What is the worst planet? What is the shittiest planet? Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. I keep hearing you say Uranus. I, I, I've heard you say Uranus now a dozen times since I've been out here. Is this how we pronounce this planet now? I mean, I think it was always pronounced like that. Yeah. It was never pronounced Uranus? I don't think so. I think it was Uranus. It's a god. You know? <laughs> I mean, um, I'm sure you could say it like that. I'm sure people do say it like that, but I don't think it's pronounced like that. 
Uh, forgive my ignorance. Which one's furthest from the sun, Neptune or Uranus? Neptune. I'm going with Neptune. Yeah? I think we should lose it as a planet. Really? I think if we lost Pluto, then Neptune should be next. But there's rules why we lost Pluto. Neptune, by rule, is a, pl- is is a, a planet. planet. It clears its own orbit. I like the name of Neptune. I- I'm going to change my answer to Uranus. I'm going to pick Uranus, too, and I'm going to give you an answer why. So okay. if you, it's funny. If you read about Voyager 2, the NASA probe Voyager 2, which is the only probe that ever got proper pictures of Uranus and Neptune, 1989, the, like the late 80s. Okay. When they went to Uranus, they were disappointed because there's nothing going on on that planet. Like we had these crazy weather, you know, the great red red spot on Jupiter and the rings of Saturn and all these kinds of this very great stuff. And they went to Uranus and it's just this it's just a blue orb. Like there's no weather pattern. There's nothing to it. It's knocked on its side from an ancient collision. So the ring system in it goes is like north and south and the and the moon's orbit like that. And it's all fucked up. in oh, that wow. regard, Which is cool Holy as hell. Sh- that's amazing. But there is nothing else going on there. And you, and I was reading a book about Voyager and it's called The Interstellar Age. It's a great book. It's written by a guy who was like an intern on the project and then grew to like into a director because it took so long for it to reach the planets that every few years there was like a new wave of people that were dealing with the data and stuff like that. And he was talking about how when they went to Uranus, like everyone was kind of bummed. Oh, really? Because they expected like way more. And then they were like, oh, it's just this orb that ha- is feature completely. I mean, you look at pictures of it featureless. Nothing going Nothing on. Nothing there. Just a totally uniform thing. I think it's pretty cool, though, because of its collision history and stuff it's like that. It's gas- not gaseous. It's no, it is. It's it's a, it, well, it's what they call the, they now term an ice giant. OK, the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn are much larger than Uranus and Neptune. But they also are, I think, primarily hydrogen and helium and, and lighter elements. While the, the so-called ice giants are similar in, in theoretic composition, but I think are made of heavier elements. And so they call them ice giants now. Gotcha. Because it's like lots of water, I think ammonia, methane and stuff like oh, that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You're Pretty out. Cool stuff. Uranus, you're out. You're out. Expelled from the... Mercury, ex- you were on the bubble. You were lucky I didn't take you out. Very interesting. Hmm. Oh, this All this astronomy talk. It is. It is very interesting. It's awesome. I enjoy it. Oh, me too. And I also enjoyed our talk about The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, the Super Nintendo classic that I hope you guys enjoy or will endeavor to enjoy. Please enjoy it. It's not overrated. This game is everything we're saying it is. You, you're going to love it. You are going to love it. If you don't love it, too bad. I don't know what else to tell you about that. <laughs> but we thank you so much for supporting our show. We hope you enjoyed our conversation here about A Link to the Past, as well as The Breath of the Wild and about the, on the lonely planet Uranus all the way out there. <laughs> 25 astronomical units away from the sun. Or you mean Uranus. I mean Uranus, of course. <laughs> of course I mean that. Remember, you can support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. Doing so nets you all sorts of perks depending on the level you support us each month. So consider going over there and showing your support for exclusive podcasts, early access to every episode of the show, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. We really appreciate it. If you listen on free feeds, thank you for that as well. Leave us nice reviews. It helps us algorithmically find new audiences. You can also stalk us on Twitter and Instagram. I know that you will. <laughs> Dagan, thank you for your time. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate you. Appreciate all of you out there. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Sean Battershall, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amore, Daniel Delanicos, Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, 
Hanna, Photios Frangos, Connor Gagian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Nathan J. Henry, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Zan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kitredge, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M., Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Jonah Newman, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Matthew Plaster, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, Hans Schierenberger, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tallman, Gabble Toombs, Tam Tran, Dan Vale, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael Edward Went, Mike Wayne, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Random Guy Radio, Mad Mock Media, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Throw7, Infinite, Barrick, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Donk2015, and Gavin.